I see the future that's within our grasp. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Democracy is not a prophecy, it's self-actuating. I'm Claire Salmi. I'm Cole Wozniak. And I'm Fiona Hatch. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. This is 1050 Bascom. On this episode of 1050 Bascom, we welcome back Professor Stephen Brooke to talk about protests in Iran after a 22-year-old woman died while in custody of the morality police for violating the country's dress code. We'll ask Professor Brooke to explain the current situation, how these ongoing protests might be different from those that Iran has experienced in the past, and the impact these uprisings are having on the Iranian government as well as U.S. relations with Iran. This was an incredibly enlightening update, and we hope you'll enjoy it. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor. We really appreciate your time and you being here. Uh, So to start off, we were hoping that you might talk a little bit broadly about the background of the Iranian government, how it's structured in Iran, as well as the role of Islam in the country's laws and leadership before we dive a little bit deeper into current events. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, thank you all for having me. Uh, it's it's great to be back and great to have this opportunity to, to, to chat with everyone. So as many of your listeners probably know, I mean, Iran's kind of role as an, a quote-unquote Islamic Republic dates back to 1979. And before that point, Iran was governed by a authoritarian but secular, to some extent, pro-Western government. Leading up to the years of 1979, there have been expressions of dissent, but they had been kind of relatively scattered among different sectors of society or different social groups and so on and so forth. In that moment in 1979, these things all coalesced and they coalesced around a religious figure named uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, who was renowned as a, as a scholar of Islam, and he became the voice of this movement. And the movement, while broad and multifaceted with different social sectors and different ideologies coalesced behind him, they managed to eject the existing government. And in the years that followed, there was a period of jockeying where it wasn't quite clear what form the government was going to take. But eventually it emerged as this Islamic Republic under Khomeini. And so the Ayatollah Khomeini had these ideas about the particular role of Islamic religious experts in their, as he put it, their, their right to rule, so their requirement that they take an active role in government. And so he kind of used this and the institutional forms of the Islamic Republic emerged in parallel with his thinking. And so in some sense, there's a lot of structural elements of the Iranian government that are pretty familiar, right? They have local elections, they have parliament, they have a presidency. These things are filled by elections, and these elections are competitive, like multiple people run. But there's some pretty significant asterisks to these, right? So, for example, the candidates have to be vetted by a body of individuals who can rule in and out candidates based on their religious credentials. So it's not just anyone can decide to run. You can decide to run, but then you may get ruled in or out based on religious criteria. There are multiple moments when religious figures inside the government have the ability to veto legislation. For example, if they deem it as insufficiently Islamic by whatever reasoning they're using. 
right? So in some sense, it'd be very familiar to forms of government we might see kind of elsewhere. But there's also these elements of, we could think of them as supervisory or oversight rules, where different bodies are able to use Islamic reasoning or use Islamic justifications, their particular interpretations thereof, to intervene directly in those processes and put their stamp on the country. And are those elections popular vote elections? Yes. Yeah. So these are abilities for individuals to vote. It's hard to know about how free and fair they are. In general, I think most conclusions would be that they are to some extent representative. There's no blatant rigging. Um, however, on that point, an earlier protest wave in Iran in 2009, you might know this as the Green Movement, started with concerns by potentially or or, or we might say like kind of a liberal candidate or a moderate candidate, that their votes, the results were kind of falsified or problematic against their candidate. So there are these lingering concerns that maybe the elections aren't as free and fair as we might think. Okay. So as we noted in the introduction, which was recorded before you arrived, the Guidance Patrol, widely known as the morality police, at least in the media right now, enforces the Islamic Republic's laws on personal behavior and dress. So they were responsible for the death of a 22-year-old Kurdish Iranian woman in September, which led to fierce, widespread, and ongoing protests. Could you give us a little background on the Guidance Patrol and what happened in those protests? Yeah, so uh, in a number of regimes around the world, there's a particular body that's charged to some extent as being a an enforcer of morality politics. And in some interpretations, this is enjoined by a, by a particular Islamic saying of encouraging the good and forbidding the bad, basically. And this can take different forms. Um, in the Iranian case, this is institutionalized in a body of individuals who have the right to go out and police morality of individual citizens. Now, when this is combined with some of the laws in the Islamic Republic, for instance, this law about the compulsory hijab, which is the, the hair covering for women, it creates these opportunities for these particular institutional bodies to kind of abuse, enforce, create these problems for ordinary people, right? And so she was kind of a very prominent case of this, right? And, and if you just look at pictures of, of women in Iran, you'll see that one of the things that they often do, kind of a style, is to wear the headscarf but creep it back a little bit to allow the front of, of, of the hair to show. And this just is an opportunity if maybe if one of these morality police officers are having a bad day or something, right, they can, they can hassle you over this. But in her case, she was detained over this. She died. Evidence later came out that suggested very strongly that she had been tortured and basically beaten to death. And when this news got out, it kickstarted a whole wave of popular anger and frustration first around this issue of the morality police, gender in Iran, but it has since started to grow. So continuing off of that, for our listeners who might not be familiar with some of the demonstrations regarding the World Cup, can you describe the incident with the Iranian national team and what the impact of that was in the country? I'm not familiar with that. Uh, you mean was, like the, the they, back and forth with the U.S. over the... Uh, and the armbands, no, or no, where they were like um, they played like the Iranian national anthem or something, and they were not um, like standing for it or like doing something like that. Oh, um, yeah, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not real. I'm not really familiar with that. Okay. I don't know specifically what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Was there? I'm just curious. How much tension was there brewing over this issue before the incident of the very public death of this woman? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, so this has been kind of a contentious issue in Iran for years, right? Um, and it's, you know, one of these things that there's always pushback against this morality policing, these compulsory hijab rules, and kind of just other aspects of the ability to police behavior, right? And I think one of the interesting things about this particular case is, you know, it's, it's very sad and it's a very public case but it's really unclear about just how rare, unprecedented it actually is. Like these types of events are potentially happening, maybe not to this extent where the individual is effectively tortured to death, but there's just a lot of frustration over this morality police. And so this is something that potentially has been building up but I think the interesting thing about this event in particular is the way that it seems to have flipped over a little bit and started to diffuse out and interact with other sectors of society and other forms of dissent and frustration in Iran. So there are thousands of young girls and women and Iranian citizens risking their lives, and it seems that the protests have evolved beyond concerns about the morality police and are more aimed at this regime change. Can you talk about how these protests have evolved and how they've come to be seen as a potential threat to the ruling regime in Iran? Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, one of the things that has happened with these protests is they've grown beyond this individual issue, right? This is no longer an issue about the morality police. It's no longer an issue about gender. But in a lot of these cases, you know, you have very direct calls for the end of the regime, the supreme leader to step down, all of these major, major calls for political change. And that's something that doesn't really happen very often. And we can go back, and if we want to put ourselves in the, in the shoes maybe of an authoritarian government like Iran, there's kind of two things that we would really be worried about, right? So one would be when these individual protests start to link up with broader agendas, right? This is one of the things that happened even you know, in Iran in 1979, where it became the religious sector, a student movement, a local middle class frustrated over economic issues, and they all coalesced together in this alliance against, the, the at that time, the government. And I think one reason why the government now would be very worried is because potentially they start to see these things as transcending these maybe more parochial interests about, you know, this is about the status of women in Iran, or this is about the status of the morality police, or the place of religion in the Iranian government, but really tapping into these other grievances about economic problems, mismanagement of political corruption, these concerns over COVID, and the relations with the West, you know, all these forms of dissent that start to link together. So one of the things you're worried about is that coalescing. The other thing that you're worried about, though, is that your security forces are eventually going to start to defect, right? They're not going to follow your orders. And so you need to be out there ordering your security forces to arrest people, to contain demonstrations. And so when they stop doing that, that's the death warrant of the regime. And I think one of the things that we're seeing now is we have one of these things where the protests are starting to link up and even sustain themselves across space and across time. But it doesn't seem like the security forces are starting to crack, right? We don't see high-level defections of individuals. We don't see mutinies of individual units refusing to carry out their duties. And so without that, it's hard to see how threatened the regime actually is. Something that you were just touching on about that coalescence of anti-regime sentiment across different sectors of Iran. Why do you think that this case in particular might be causing that coalescence? Is the, do you think that there has been, in some sense, people waiting for something to happen in which they could start these more massive protests? Or do you think that there were specifics of this case that really ended up uh, speaking to a wide range of people? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't really have a good answer for that. I think one of the things that, you know, if we, if we take a, maybe a longer view in Iran, we could see that there are these moments of frustration that have occurred in the past. I mentioned, you know, the 2009 protests that, you know, we call it like the green movement over frustrations and concerns about uh, kind of electoral fraud and malfeasance. There's a long running concerns about the economy. There's frustrations over COVID. The student sector, the student sector is always a source of unrest. And so each time these movements occur, they in Iran, they have kind of not succeeded in generating massive change that they may have wanted, but they've also left like a residue. And so one of the things that's potentially happening here is that each time a protest occurs, it's creating this idea among Iranians that I might be unhappy about the regime for my particular reason. Maybe they hassle me for wearing my headscarf a certain way. Maybe I lost my job or something like that. But there are other people who are mad about the regime for something else. And this idea, not just that you have a grievance, but other people around you have grievances, can be really powerful for mobilization. And so we saw this in the Arab Spring, where in the Tunisian case, this was a guy who was frustrated over corruption and economic immiseration. In Egypt, it was about police brutality. But these things quickly grew because there was a reservoir of dissent and frustration in society that for some reason, these events captured. So how have Iranian leaders responded to those protests in the past several months? Yeah. Well, so a number of things, right? So the obvious one is through repression, right? And so they have met the protesters with both official and non-official forms of violence and harassment. There's been deaths, hundreds of deaths. There have been media blackouts. And so this idea you, you want as an authoritarian maybe to prevent this information from spreading. So maybe you can do things like reduce access to the internet, prevent the coverage of, of these protests from being widespread. And so you have on the one side these kind of repressive measures. I think one of the things that's been interesting is to watch the extent to which the regime potentially feels like it also needs to make concessions, whether they're kind of real or imagined, to potentially try and either just take the wind out of the sails of the protesters or potentially try and take that coalition and start to break off particular pieces by making concessions that might demobilize certain sectors or individuals. So do you think that those concessions will end up helping the Iranian government? Or do you think that that might weaken its position in the long run? Yeah, this is a good question. And this is always something that these regimes are playing off against, right? Because they, they're worried that on the one hand, you might demobilize people. On the other, they might smell weakness and decide to push even more. Uh, and I think here it's hard to know. I, my, my intuition is that the regime would not like to make concessions at all. So the fact that it is to some extent seeming to be trying to placate some of these demands of these protesters is potentially meaningful. It remains to be seen about whether they will take which, you know, which of these tracks that you've outlined they might actually take. Do you know of any examples off the top of your head of a very specific concession that seems targeted to a, a smaller group? Yeah, this is a great question. And so this is one way I would read this confusion over the morality police, right? And so we had this report come out by the effectively the attorney general of Iran saying that the morality police was going to be disbanded. And this is a very public uh, statement is put forward very strongly. And you can imagine that one of the reasons for this is that they, they understand that the morality police itself is a real source of grievance for a lot of these people. And it comes on the back of a period of time where like the morality police 
themselves seem to have been pulled back off the streets a little bit, right? They're not as visible. And so you would do this because you know that these people are probably creating more problems for you than they're solving. And so one way to read that is the government trying to make a concession to people whose major grievance is about the morality police, right? So you, you may not want the regime to fall. You may just be frustrated about their ability to intrude on your daily life. So maybe their thinking is this will get those people back off the streets into their homes and the movement will start to fall apart. Mm. And since the concession has that happened, since the morality police have been taken off the street, have you been seeing that kind of weakening of the movement? Yeah. Uh, it's really, I think it's too early to tell. I think the other angle of this is it's actually not clear the extent to which the morality police is actually being disbanded. The individual who claimed this doesn't have authority over the morality police. This is something that's run out of basically the interior ministry, not out of the justice ministry, apparently. So it's unclear if this ambiguity is the regime trying to have it both ways of trying to seem like they're making a concession, but then not really. Or maybe it's just a reflective of actual turmoil inside the regime and different factions where, you know, individuals are trying to make a play to wage these internal battles against hardliners or softliners or so on. Do you know if the leader, Kamene, has issued any sort of statement on these protests in general? Mm. That's a good question. I don't actually know. And how has the U.S. responded to these protests? Do you mm. think there are any diplomatic constraints or opportunities that might be playing into how the Biden administration has responded? Yeah, I mean, the U.S. is in a really tough spot. And I think given a not great set of options, I think the Biden administration has been pretty judicious about it. I, the, at, at a basic level, the United States' ability to do anything in this case is very, very limited, right? And the extent to which the United States comes out very, very strongly on behalf of the protesters, for instance, what we would then probably see is the Iranian government really seize on this, flip it and make it an issue of nationalism, right? Try and tie the protesters to foreign interference in Iran. And that obviously has a lot of resonance inside of, inside of the country. Um, so I think, you know, staying out, issuing calls of support for general human rights. I think in the background, you know, the Biden administration has been doing things like tightening some sanctions. So there is some kind of tangibility there. But also this is difficult against the backdrop of the, the, the Iranian nuclear negotiations, which is the other big piece of, of U.S. policy. Actually, turning over to that, what does the situation look like right now with these protests and how they've maybe impacted efforts for the U.S. and the EU to potentially resume nuclear negotiations with Iran? Yeah. Well, um, as you know, under the Obama administration, there was a comprehensive treaty or a comprehensive agreement signed with Iran, Iranian nuclear deal, JCPOA, you hear it called different things. And it provided a way for Iran to, to halt its path towards producing a nuclear weapon. And in exchange, it set out potential pathways towards economic relief of sanctions and, and normalization. And this had just gotten underway. And of course, this was one of the, the centerpieces of the Trump administration was to roll back this agreement. And so in 2018, the Trump administration pulled out of this kind of unilaterally and went back to the status quo ante. And of course, that creates a whole set of really difficult problems for the Biden administration, or really any administration that would have come after, because it's going to require a lot of work to set this back up again in some form, right? The Iranian government is rightly very suspicious. They're worried that any deal that they sign 
is going to just be reversed by the next administration that comes in. And so it's going to require more concessions to get them to come back to the table. And it seems like the Biden administration, they maybe made a conscious decision to step back from foreign policy, let that just uh, proceed on cruise control while they dealt with other issues, right? COVID, the domestic economy, all, all of these things. And so they haven't really been prioritizing the Iranian nuclear deal, right? They've been kind of keeping it on the back burner a little bit. And now it raises a lot of political stakes because... Biden does have some political capital, like coming out of the midterms, right? He's stronger than expected. It just remains to be seen if the Iranian nuclear deal is an area where he wants to spend that political capital, particularly now, because any negotiations with Iran would raise these criticisms and concerns that he's legitimating a regime that is engaged in pretty serious human rights violations. And so that's a pretty powerful countervailing force to anything Biden wants to really push forward uh, on, on this issue. Sure. Just kind of continuing on talking about some of the Western responses to this, we're curious on your view of the U.S. combined with other West, Western nations have responded to the protests. So we're thinking, for example, about the recent U.N. Human Rights Council announcement that will establish a special commission to investigate violence and also Iran's support for Russia's war in Ukraine. What are your thoughts on how that response has gone? And do you think it really has any impact what the U.N. Human Rights Council does? I mean, it's going to be hard because anything that happens on the Security Council is, is going to be vetoed, right? Um, and I think potentially there's some symbolic worth in trying to highlight the human rights violations that are, that are occurring in Iran. But I think, you know, the United States is stuck in this position where they can, I think, quite credibly be accused of hypocrisy, right? And calling for human rights investigations of Iran, calling for human rights investigations of Russia, while they're, in my opinion, totally justified, the question is also turned around of why is the United States not calling for human rights investigations of some of its allied governments in the region? And so that's just one of these uncomfortable things that, you know, the Biden administration, by going back to these basic, we could say kind of more realist or security and interest focused ways of dealing with the region has really made it a lot harder for them to lodge these critiques based on human rights abuses, democracy that that really actually might make an impact. I guess my other question, the other piece of that would be the way that this particular situation in Iran has become so publicly, at least in my particular circle, information on this has become so publicly available so quickly through social media. And I'm just wondering, are all of the posts on social media that are trying to garner attention and awareness about the issue, do you think that really has any impact on what the Iranian government is going to do? What U.S. 20-year-olds think of this situation? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, I think, you know, to the extent that this is becoming an issue that people care about and they can channel their concerns either up through the, the standard representative channels or the way that these can kind of motivate collective action uh, in your own communities. Like, this is an important thing, right? And I think one thing that potentially seems to be happening is that there are lots of protest movements where individuals are finding that the grievances that they hold are not necessarily narrow and parochial, but are shared by other people, right? And I think that can be really powerful. And instead of thinking about these things in kind of a very short-term, limited time horizon of, you know, is it possible to pressure the Iranian government to change some particular policy, but rather just 
creating the infrastructure to people to mobilize around issues that they care about, whether they're in Iran or whether they're closer to home, I think that can be particularly meaningful, even divorced from this issue about is this going to have any effect on the Iranian government or, or how America deals with Iran? If if this support that has been garnered like through social media, if more people start to mobilize around this, especially in the U.S., do you think that that might strengthen, say, the Biden administration's position in negotiations with Iran? And do you think that that might change how Biden ends up approaching this issue as he's been hesitant? Yeah, I mean, I think Biden, like any other president, would be in some sense very sensitive to public opinion on these issues, right? And I think a couple other instances in the in the Biden presidency, you know, we've, we've seen the presidency move based on pressure from the base, right? Whether it's on things like uh, marijuana decriminalization, whether it's on things like student loan relief, like these things have really pushed forward when there's been popular movements against them. Now, I don't know if this would translate seamlessly to an issue geopolitical kind of import like this, but you know that pressure is is something that really representatives are responsive to in some ways, and, and also you can imagine that the administration would be as well. So earlier you mentioned how what we're seeing in Iran mirrored some other situations where we, you mentioned Tunisia and um, Right now in China, there's a similar situation where concerns about the zero COVID policy has kind of brought in towards people carrying signs like that the Xi Jinping. And while that doesn't seem like that's going to go anywhere in terms of regime change, it might in Iran. Can you talk about just where this would like, how well this mirrors to other situations and how that can be a guide towards like what the outcome might be? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think here we do have some theories in political science that help us understand how these things tend to happen or how regime changes kind of tend to happen. And they are the two things that I mentioned earlier, right, where you tend to have protest movements that coalesce and that grow beyond particular issues. So in China, it's the, the worry is that these protest issues, they stay confined to COVID, that's manageable. But if they start to expand to mismanagement, corruption, human rights, critiques of the entire system, that's bad news. The other one is to the, ex- the extent to which those security services are willing to do what's necessary on the streets to crack down on that protest movement. And, you know, I think maybe the thing to be a little bit pessimistic about in the Iranian case is the regime does have access to money, right? I mean, they are very well endowed with natural resources and they're able to convert those into cash. And the extent to which they still have that cash to pay the security apparatus that's that's a meaningful thing, right? It kind of reduces the chances that the security apparatus is going to is is going to defect or is going to not follow the orders to crack down on on the protesters. I think the other thing to be aware of is, you know, in political science, we like to kind of draw a distinction between something like regime change or democratization we might think of and the consolidation of a new regime. And it's not necessarily the case that the regime, if we were to kind of go forward a number of months and that these protests have grown and the regime suddenly falls, that might be interesting for us in explaining the, why the regime collapses, but it doesn't necessarily tell us about what's going to come next, right? It's not necessarily a kind of a linear path from the overthrow of an authoritarian regime to the rise of a democratic one. It's a long process and it's difficult and we can look to the Arab Spring to see that. We had a number of cases where those authoritarian regimes fell. And then within a number of years, 
they kind of slid back from weak democracies into authoritarian rule. Most recently, kind of the Tunisian case is an example of this. So, you know, we might kind of see regime change, but we would want to be very careful about assuming that that's automatically going to lead to democracy or the consolidation of some form of like representative accountable government. Have there been any more moderate or liberal characters in the Iranian nation that have been highlighted by these recent protests, like any political leaders or something in waiting that might have been highlighted? Yeah, I think my intuition here is that um, many of these figures are staying out of it. I mean, I think you have kind of a very loud diaspora that is interested in these protests, promoting them, promoting all of these human rights violations that are occurring and condemning the regime. I think people inside of Iran, these kind of political figures who might be allies of of this movement, um, I think, you know, one of the the worries is that as soon as they come out and very strongly ally with these movements, potentially this might make these protests like a partisan issue, right? Um, And so that can potentially play into the regime's hands by, again, allowing it to start to kind of like section off these protests as being narrow and parochial rather than being full-fledged condemnation of the regime itself. So one thing that we wanted to touch on was Iran's interactions with Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, We were wondering first if you wanted to explain that a little bit, how Iran's support for uh, the war has progressed, what it looks like. And also, going off of that, do you think that the West should prioritize Iran's support for war in Ukraine and base their foreign policy decisions in Iran off of that? Or do you think that they should prioritize engaging in negotiations to try to mitigate the violence being seen across the nations with all of these protests? I mean, that's a difficult question. I mean, I think, as, as I understand it, although I'm not an expert in, in the Ukraine, one of the things that the Iranian government has been doing is providing weaponry. Uh, the other thing that they've been doing, obviously, is uh, selling oil. And I think it's just very hard for the United States to weigh in on those issues and do anything really meaningful, more than they already have with sanctions packaging. I mean, you know, I think that the United States is going to be very careful about how they kind of get to the stage of prioritizing different issues. I mean, we don't really understand what exactly the Biden administration is prioritizing with its Iran policy, especially now, right? And as I mentioned, it seems like before these uprisings, before the war in Ukraine, they were kind of slow playing relations with Iran. The negotiations were not on the front burner. Seems like now additional things have popped up, these protests that make it even harder for them to engage on this issue. You know, I, I, I would not expect that these issues of Iran support for Russia's war in, in Ukraine are going to be really that determinative of the Biden administration's approach. But I, I, again, it, it's not really an area that I'm an expert in. So why is Iran participating in the war effort against Ukraine? Is it primarily for the profit of selling arms and resources to Russia? Why are they deciding to jump on this ship in particular right now? Yeah, I mean, Iran has had long relationships with Russia. I mean, it's it's Russia in some sense that had Iran's back to some extent at the at the UN. But also, yeah, I mean, it's it's money. You know, Iran needs hard currency, and it can get that by selling oil on the global market, including to Russia. And it can also do that by selling arms. Right? They have a pretty well developed arms industry, domestic arms industry. And I think, you know, as seen in Iran recent years, there's been some kind of currency flight out of Iran. So individuals have been investing outside of the country. And so that creates kind of a need for foreign currency to come in. And so this is one easy way to get it. 
I'm just curious, do you have a, a good grasp on what life is like for the average Iranian citizen right now, maybe in Tehran or a bigger city? Like, how disruptive has this whole thing been for day-to-day life? Yeah, this is a great question. I, I think, you know, it, in many ways, kind of Iran is particularly in a place like Tehran, it's fairly middle class, right? I mean, you can look at the statistics and get a sense kind of of how it is. And of course, there's areas of extreme poverty and areas of extreme affluence. But I think one of the things that you you kind of have tended to see, and I think the Arab Spring experience has really highlighted this, is that protests are, by design, they are very disruptive, right? A protest that doesn't disrupt things, doesn't collect attention, is really kind of not doing much. Now, at one point that disruption imposes real costs on ordinary people's lives. So, for example, you can imagine owning a small shop and every day there's a protest and that protest prevents customers from coming to your shop or maybe it results in a fight with the police that gets all your glass broken or your stock destroyed. You might be sympathetic with the ideals of that protest, but over time, it's imposing real material costs on you. And so you might get to the stage where you start to become alienated from those protesters and you maybe start to become resentful and frustrated. And I think this is something that we saw in a lot of countries in the Middle East where these initial demands for more representative government, more accountability, kind of started to conflict with ideas of, I just want to be able to operate my business, right? I want to be able to commute to work in the morning without having to drive around these roadblocks. And so as these activists in Iran continue with these protests, one of the things that they're, uh, I'm, I'm sure, trying to trade off on is how do you maintain or even grow support among people who aren't really full-fledged members of this protest movement and not alienate them by the way that you kind of adopt these particular repertoires. Jumping back to talking more about the Western response, you did touch on like what could happen with the Biden administration and potentially a new Democrat or Republican president in 2024 in terms of how these negotiations go. Do you see it being a big issue in the 2024 election, this topic of what to do foreign policy-wise with Iran, or do you think it's just not really in the minds of a lot of citizens in the U.S. right now? Yeah, I honestly, I, I don't imagine it becoming an issue unless there's something really serious that happens. I mean, if you... You can imagine, you know, a case of regime change or maybe, you know, massacre of protesters or something where it really kind of makes this a salient issue. But I think, you know, as I said, the Biden administration seems to be very much slow playing this. Like they have a lot on their plate, not just at other places in the world, but also domestically. And so the extent to which they can keep this pot from simmering over is going to be their strategy particularly once you start to get into the run-up to the presidential elections. And to wrap up, is there anything, hundreds of protesters have died and things like that, but what is something that brings you hope about the um, incident in Iran? You know, as I mentioned before, right, every time these protest movements happen, they're in some sense generative, right? They create new connections, they create new networks, they create and disseminate information that people are frustrated with things and people kind of want something different. And again, if we kind of zoom out from this particular instance and kind of look at things in maybe a a, a longer term perspective, you know, that is very powerful, right? The fact that people understand that there's other people like them who have grievances that are like theirs. uh, And that potentially creates this, this core that is potentially might not be this year, might not be next year, might not be the years down the road, but this real potential source of change.
Well, we really appreciate you being with us today and sharing what we do know about this situation. I know there's a lot of unknowns yet, but thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak, and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.